Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we're continuing our series over the Red Letter Challenge. Enjoy. Okay, well, let's go to our lesson for today. It's our last, uh, our last bit of the Red Letter uh, Challenge. So a reminder then, next week we start up with John again. We'll probably have to reintroduce John to remind everybody who he was. But again, I, what I want to do is, is again sort of remind you of the approach that I've been taking in terms of the way that all of these red letter challenges are, in my mind, related. And they're related because they all start with this idea of being. Now, I've not taken the approach of saying that this is all about being with God. It's not, I mean, it certainly is part of that. But the biggest chunk of being is having to do with who you are. What, what your, who your identity is in Christ, how you got that identity, and what the value of that identity is as you go all the way through your life, including eternity. And so from a being perspective, that is a who you are, God in our baptisms reminds us who we are and in fact makes us who we are. He says, you are what? You are my child whom I love and with you I am, and with you I am well pleased, right? So it's a both a presence as well as the sentiment that he has toward us, which is that he is well pleased with us. And being then a baptized child of God, that does not change. While we would, as Lutherans, we would say, we, we, we would not say once saved, always saved. We would say once baptized, always baptized. Now, I may drift from that, but I can always come back to that, right? And coming back to him, then I'm coming back to celebrate the thing that God said I was and I am as his child. So the core of our being is in the baptism. And so then the idea is, is that what we do flows out of who we are. And even if the what you do ain't all that great, and as we look at this sort of diagram of the forgiving, the serving, the giving, and the going, any of us can identify times in life when we hit the target. And then we can, we can identify times in our life when we didn't hit the target. And you sort of feel bad about the times when you didn't quite do it the way you thought you should. But how well you do it does not change the identity of who you are and how God feels about you, the sentiment he has. So this is both the motive for doing these things as well as the power to do these things. So if that's the case, if God's power is the thing that drives us to do this and empowers us to do it, why don't we do it? Hmm. Gee, it got awfully quiet in here. A lot of dead space online here. Yeah, Kim? Afraid of failure. Yeah, so there's some, there's some mitigating factors here, all right? And so if you look at uh, point C on the first page of your outline, we're predisposed not to do it. 
It's counterinstinctual for us to do it, at least by human standards, and that's because of the presence of our sinful nature. The sinful nature that we have inside steers us away either from doing it for the right reason or from doing it at all. And so there's a couple points there. We're predisposed to either do those actions from a self-centered motive or not do them at all. And neither one of them is, a really, is really good for us. So we might do those actions from the perspective of to make ourselves look good or to relieve guilt in some way, like some sort of penance. Well, I have to do it or else kind of idea. Or just that we want to score points with God. We want to look better to God. Those certainly could motivate a person to do a lot of those, right? But it's for the wrong reason. And if it becomes for the wrong reason, then it does nothing to support or, or build or grow our relationship with God, even though we're actually doing the activities that you would say, well, those are good things to do. Okay, a couple hands have gone up already. Yeah, Keith. As our favorite matriarch was born, yeah. Original, you know, the original yes. So, you see where I'm going with this. Now, how would that do when she acted as an apple? Now, say, uh, uh, say that again because I was thinking about how great it is that you're standing up. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't listening. I wasn't listening to what you said. Okay, so say that again. So we take Eve before the original sin. Yeah. So she was not born in sin, no sinful nature. Right. But she actually didn't follow through when she ate the apple. Yeah. So what are you asking? How does that fit in? How does that fit in? All right. So um, when Eve, and we'll just leave Adam out of the story for right now. <laughs> Poor Adam. Yeah. Okay. So we're just talking about Eve. Okay. So, so when Eve went toward the apple, assuming it's the apple, okay, it might be a tangerine or something. Okay. <laughs> What was her intent, and what did she believe about herself in relationship to God that might have been a factor in why she went for the fruit in the first place? If you think about it from that point of view. See, God said you can have anything you want in the garden, any tree, any fruit except that one. So the human thought there is, well, how come I can't have that one? Instead of, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Look at everything I've got. I have this mountain of blessings in my life, except for that one thing that I don't have the blessing of. So what, what happens to your focus when, that, when you're confronted with that? We stop looking at all the riches that God gives us, and now we start to go OCD on the one thing that you can't have, and you start to think, God is holding out on you. And you begin to resent the fact that God is holding out on you. So even though she did not have a sinful nature, she kind of created one inside, did she not? That's, yeah, that's, that's where she went. Yeah. She hasn't, she's not sinful yet, so why, how would she think that way before she sinned? So then we sort of get the idea that, well, okay, here comes Satan. And so what is Satan's strategy with Eve? 
He goes to her, and what's the very first thing he says? What's the first thing he asks? Did God really say? So his deal is to get her to doubt what God really said. Now, it, 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 the book of Genesis doesn't tell us every single thing God said. So there's, you know, kind of a little bit of summary of things. But the impression you get, I get anyway, is that what God was saying to Adam and Eve is this is who you are. And the devil is saying, let's doubt that. Let's doubt the fact that you're beloved. Does God really think you're beloved? Have you ever thought that to yourself? Uh, I wonder if God thinks I'm beloved. Have you ever thought that? If you're honest, yes, you have. I have. When bad things happen in life, we go, oh, is this the way, is this what being beloved is about? Do I really want this version of belovedness? Yeah, I would say that we all go there. And so Satan was very intentional about his, his uh, strategy. So he goes and he says, did God really say? And then Eve says kind of what God said. She added a few little parts to it. And then uh, he says, well, you know, that's not what really God means. And then he says, in fact, you'll be what? Like God. Which is, I don't think that Eve heard the word like in there. You will be what? God. So see, part of the problem is, is that when I don't believe this, then that affects everything else. And it changes why I do what I do, it changes how I feel about what I do, and it changes not only the motive for doing it, but also the, uh, the power to do it, especially when it gets hard to do it. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? I tried to dance around it as much as I could. <laughs> Hoping I could get you lost so that you wouldn't even remember what it was. <laughs> do what? Yeah, go, go to that second opinion. Do it this week, by the way. That would be excellent to do that. Yeah. All right. So, so the, that see, when, when, I don't, when I don't think this is true, the being beloved part, and then maybe to even extend that a little bit, when I don't remind myself of that truth. Because sometimes it's easy to forget that. If you, like, are a human in this world long enough, you'll have tons of messages that will, that will refute that. So you have to be, you know, we have to remind ourselves of that all the time. But if I, if I don't do that, then either it'll affect my doing or it'll affect my not doing. So I might do those things for the wrong reason with the wrong motive, or I might not do them at all, as Kim pointed out, out of fear. And so what could possibly be the fear? So I've kind of listed some there. The fear is that if I forgive somebody, they'll keep hurting me. You ever had that thought about forgiveness? Yeah. Well, if I forgive them, then I'm sort of condoning what they did, and then they might keep on doing it, so why forgive them? That's a thought. That's a sort of logic that we have. Or that if I serve somebody, they'll take advantage of me. You ever had that fear? Yeah, sure. That if I give to somebody, they'll just keep asking me for more. If you've ever given to a charity, <laughs> not the church, that would never happen in the church, then you're on their list, and then you're likely to get more solicitations for whatever it is you gave. And you're sort of tempted 
to either give like anonymously in secret through uh, bank accounts, Swiss bank accounts, and, you know, route it all different ways so that they can't find you, okay? And then the last one that we're talking about today, that if I go and tell someone about my life with Jesus, my fear is that I'll be persecuted for it. Is that a possibility today? Absolutely. You don't have to go to China in order to be persecuted for that. Or I will say the wrong thing. You ever had that fear? Oh, heavens, if I say the wrong thing, they're going to hell, and gosh, it's all my fault, right? Okay. So see, fear is a palpable thing. Fear is a real thing. And sometimes what happens is we fear these things, and in doing so, we forget who we are. And when I forget who I am or diminish who I am, then what happens is that it impacts these things. Now, you notice I put on the board the green arrows and all that kind of thing because I've been thinking about this, and the thought I've been having is the idea that actually when I do these things, I'm serving. One way to serve is to do what? Forgive. One way to serve certainly is to go. Another way to serve is to give. Uh, to, to, yeah, to give. And so... It's not that these are all separate things. I look at them as very linked together kinds of things. And when I am generous, and we talked about that with respect to giving, but I would suggest that there is room for the idea that I could be generous with forgiveness, generous with serving, generous with giving, certainly, and generous with going. So just some food for thought here. Yeah, Bob. Oh, could you stand up and say that, please? Thank you. My comment is, you've got this listed as I, 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 I. Yes. When you take your focus off of Christ and God and on I, you're lost. That's correct. Thank you. Did you all hear him say that? Yes. I think he, he said that very well. And that's the problem with fear, isn't it? Because what does fear do? It does what? It turns me away from the focus on God and what God has done for me and Jesus and the whole thing, and it turns it into all about me. And we're not thinking about it at the moment that we're doing that. But what happens is we become very aware of our own inadequacies, and then we take our eyes off of Jesus. Okay? So that's just to sort of give some thought to the idea that Sometimes we get in our own way in terms of doing the very thing that we've been not only uh, motivated to do, but also empowered to do, and to, to get our sort of, um, to, to get all of that in the right order. That it starts here with the fact that we're be- we are being beloved. We are God's beloved. And when you think about it from that perspective, how can we stop doing this? Not we could, but there's no legitimate reason for doing that. Okay, yeah, Marv. Well, um, I think you could probably do a whole separate <coughs> class on sharing the gospel. Okay. The gospel. Yeah. Because one of the things I've, I've moved in on for me was, because I'm basically an introvert, is I will say the wrong thing. But adding to that is, what do I say? What do I say? Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate Pastor Collins this more, some of his lessons at the end about those six orders. Yeah. Do you remember the order that they were in? No. 
So maybe we can petition him to put that in the bulletin or something like that so that it could be written down, or I hope somebody did write it down. Did you write it down, Christina? Okay, great. So we'll expect you to be doing this the whole week and then this following week. Good, excellent. All right, well, let's go to the next page then and talk a little bit about what the Bible says about compassionately and courageously going or just the idea of what it says going. And so interestingly enough, the gospel reading this morning is the reading that I have the first one here listed for you, which is in uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Says, and Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Uh, of all those things that he just said there, uh, which of them is the most meaningful to you? If you break it apart, which of those is the most comforting to you? Which is the most important to you? What I'm with you always. Why? Why is that important to you? It gives you strength that as long as he's with you, you can do anything. Yeah. And it's almost like he's helping, guiding you what to say and how to handle situations. Yeah. Feel like he's right there with you. That's right. And so then, and when you leave the situation, he goes off with you and he stays behind. So that's the beauty of omniscience, right? Is that uh, uh, omnipresence, is that you can be like in six places at one time. So in the same way that if, if you share the word with somebody and then you leave, the word doesn't leave, it stays with the person. It does leave with you, but it also stays with the person. And it's working, the Holy Spirit's working in that person's heart uh, because of what you said, and in some cases, in spite of what you said, right? Because sometimes we goof up the words, don't we? Yeah, sometimes we do, all right? Or sometimes other people will, will ask a question or worse, offer an objection, it was interesting, I had a conversation yesterday with a young guy, he's a high school senior, so I guess he's probably like, what, about 17. He, uh, he was raised in Lutheran school, went through Lutheran school, and so I don't know how we got onto the subject, but somehow we got onto the subject of uh, how can Jesus be uh, God and how can Jesus be man at the same time? I wish I'd had Pastor Coleman's sermon yesterday so I could have answered that question today. It was really difficult to answer that question in an easy way because that's a question that every single uh, person who's ever gone through catechism would ask exactly the same thing. How can Jesus be 100% God and 100% man? 50-50 makes more sense, does it not, right? So we ventured into that a little bit. And then we went on to other things. Sometimes that's the way these conversations go. They come up out of the blue. And it's a little bit of thinking, okay, do I have to have every single doctrinally correct with Bible passages to support it? Or can I just entertain that question and say, let's talk about that again in addition to now? Is it okay to do that? Sure. 
Because part of what happens in that moment is, number one, it was pretty gutsy for him to ask me that question in the first place because he knew I was a pastor. Does it take guts sometimes to ask your pastor controversial questions that you should have learned in confirmation? (laughs) And risk the possibility that the pastor might say, didn't you go through my confirmation class? Weren't you listening? Don't you risk that? Sure. But he was willing to do that. And we're going to pick up, the next time I visit with him, we're going to pick up that conversation and, and sort of, you know, flick it a little bit and uh, see where it goes. So sometimes that's the way those things work. Okay. Jesus, uh, he's, this is at the end of Matthew. And he's saying, all authority has been given to me. And so now, therefore, what? You go and do something. So what does that say about the authority part? If the authority is given to me and I'm telling you to go do something, he's sort of suggesting what? That you now have the same authority as I'm giving to you as was given to me. Okay? So he says, go therefore. The Greek is a little different than go therefore. The Greek language says, having therefore already gone. Now, that's a little different than saying go. What's the difference between saying go and saying having therefore already gone? The assumption is what? You're in the act of going. You're already going. It isn't like, oh, you're not going and I'm telling you to go. It's you're already going. So there's an implication to that, and in my sense of that implication is, is that we are already doing more going than we think. Because if you think of go as an event, then you will think, well, uh, one moment I was not, and the next moment I was, and that event occurred, and then, but having already going sort of implies that no matter what you're doing, you're going. So here's where my wild brain went with this. Do you remember the story of um, Peter walking on the water? Remember that story? Disciples are trying to get across the Sea of Galilee. The wind's blowing. And Jesus isn't with them. And then Jesus comes walking on the water. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come out on the water. And and Jesus says, yes. And Peter goes, oh, what was I thinking? Okay, so um, that's that moment. Who in the story was going? We would say Peter, right? We would say Peter is the most important guy in the story because Peter is the one that got out of the boat and walked, went, he he went, okay? And so sometimes I think that we think to ourselves what going is about is getting out of the boat and doing a miraculous thing that then, if only I had the faith to do that, if only Jesus would say, Jim Adi, please get out of the boat and walk on the water, then I could feel good about going. So what about the other 11? Were they guilty of not going and just staying put? Or did they have a role to play in the going as well? You ever thought about that? where they might be able to actually feel good about the fact that they contributed to Peter's going. And here's kind of where I'm going with this. I think there's something to be said 
for the idea of going and or supporting those who go. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Is that legitimate? Is it a legitimate form of going to be a support of those who go? Or are we all expected to get out of the boat and walk toward Jesus and do the miraculous moment in, like in that story? You see where I'm kind of playing with this a little bit? Who wants to stand up and talk about it? Yeah. All right. Thanks. I've been involved in mission work for 10 years in Honduras. I yes. I tell you, I, you know, because we're there personally, but we cannot do it without the help of the people here first. Yes. So we have many, many things that have to be done here, and there's no way we can ever go there without that help. Uh, and the monetary help, too. I'm, not, I'm talking, you know, like we pack pills, we pack 300,000 pills to distribute to the patients down there. And we have to get together the equipment and <laughs> supplies. And, and so uh, all that takes dozens and dozens of people before the trip to make it happen. That's right. And then also the, the monetary help helps too. Yeah. So all of it is equally important or we couldn't do it. No, that's right. Because if a, a hundred people provided all that and then a hundred people went on that thing with you, that would be chaotic. So there is this idea that I can be involved in going by supporting those who actually physically go. So here's kind of where I go with this in terms of that story. What were the other 11 doing while Peter was walking on the water? They're making sure that the boat doesn't sail off. <laughs> if they all get out of the water and walk toward Jesus, what's the boat going to do in that wind? It's going to blow toward the shore and crash on the rocks, and then they would have an awfully long walk on the water to do. And see, I just look at it from that perspective because I think sometimes we, we narrow the perspective so much of what going looks like and of what sharing looks like that if we don't live up to that standard, then we feel bad and we say, well, then there's nothing I can do. And that's baloney. That's baloney. There's a lot that we can do, but it may not necessarily mean that it's my turn to get out of the boat and walk on the water. Because, by the way, to get out of the boat, you have to rock the boat, and that is not appreciated by everybody else in the boat. I'm thinking Peter was at the back of the boat, and he's tripping over everybody... <laughs> To get to the front of the boat where Jesus is because, you know, he probably wasn't very graceful. Okay, there's a lot of Lutherans like that. So it's just that idea to get you to think in terms of, like Max pointed out, is that it takes a lot of preparation to go. It takes a lot of support to go. And then even while you're doing the going, you have people at the base camp back here who are praying for you and they're doing all kinds of stuff. See, and and then welcoming you back and all that kind of thing. And so that is just as critical, if not more critical, than or at least equal to the criticalness of the going. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so don't diminish the contribution that you make. Now that at the same time means that you do make a contribution to the going and, and not just say, well, it's, that's somebody else, okay? That's where the temptation kicks in. 
But it's just that idea to think of it that way. Okay, hope I'm kind of making sense here. All right, hands up. There wasn't, oh yeah, Carl. There's a, another point I'm having already lost. You mentioned identity. Yeah. They already, and we already, have that beloved identity. Yeah. And it leaks through us. Yeah. As Christians, whether, whether we're go, we know we're going or not, people are seeing it in us, and it's, a, it's that. Yeah. So he said that, did you hear what he said? Sort of. Okay, so it's just sort of the idea that, that when you have that identity, then that's who you are. And when that's who you are, that leaks out of you. And some, but sometimes people can't exactly connect the dots between what I do and who I am. So that may be where I have to just mention Jesus. I'm a Christian, something like that. By the way, how many of you have... I know we've talked about this like a million years ago, is uh, how many of you have some sort of designation on your car that you're a Christian? Like, do you have the little uh, fish thing? Do you have the little fish thing? No? Uh, Gerald, what do you have? Yeah, I have the fish. What else is out there? Yeah, Jane? Oh, Jane. <laughs> Did you hear what she said? She, okay, Jane, this is your moment. Yes. I have a license plate. Frame. Yeah, a license plate frame. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're likely to get rear-ended one of these days. Somebody's going to take that kind of personally, but that's pretty funny. Okay, any other, uh, any other indications that uh, you are a Christian? on your car? Well, I've, I've got one. I don't know if it's exactly Christian, but it's a G with the arrow. G. It's G, which is God. God. And then the arrow sign, which arrow. is greater. Gra oh, greater the at sign, yes. And then ups and downs. God is greater than my ups and downs. Oh, that's, yeah. And it requires a little math knowledge there, doesn't it? <laughs> which I always get that goofed up, and I have to look at it twice, and... Yeah, I like that too. Well, okay, so here's the deal to remember. If you have some indication on your car that you're a Christian or a member of Messiah, some people have Messiah Lutheran, be a good driver. <laughs> There's an extra obligation on you, which is why I don't have anything on my car. And especially when you're in a parking lot and you're looking for that parking spot that's the closest and you kind of want to whip it in there real close, or worse, park in a uh, handicap parking, just be aware, okay, you know, if somebody knows you're a Christian or you are indicating that, then you're communicating that you live by a different standard and hopefully drive by the higher standard as well. We, you know, just a little uh, PSA here. Okay, all right, so, um, all right, so then Jesus says, go make disciples, and then he says, by how? How do we make disciples, or how are disciples made? By doing what? Baptizing and teaching, right. So it says, teaching what? Teaching what? All that I have commanded you. So what's included in all that I've commanded you? What's included in it? Nobody seems to know. What, all that, is, that I've commanded you, right? Everything in the scriptures, right? 
Yeah. What if it's not politically correct? What if it's not popular? What if somebody says, well, that's your truth? That doesn't make it not true. See, we're commanded to do what? Because again, it goes back to the idea that the way disciples are made and lives are changed is that a person becomes a new creation through baptism. And then that new creation is fed and sustained and grown and matured through what? Through the Word. That's why we don't, we don't goof up with the Word. We don't take away from the Word. That's why we, in Lutheran world anyway, we say that the Bible is the Word of God. We don't say it just contains the Word of God. That's a big deal for us because that's how your faith is sustained and that's how it grows, okay? So another aspect of going is in terms of when I go, what do I do? So here's where we get to Ezekiel 37, 1 to 10. The hand of the Lord was upon me. This is Ezekiel talking. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. So what it suggests is that this is a place where frequent battles took place. Okay. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So the battle had taken place a long time ago. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together. Boy, that would have been really weird in that moment, right? (laughs) Bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What's the point? We're commanded to prophesy. So what does that mean, to prophesy, as it is defined here? Was Ezekiel commanded to tell the future? No, and that's what most people think prophesying is. But here it's defined as what? Hear the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord has such power that it can do what? Take a dead person, literally like bones of the person, and out of that bring life. Now, if you look at that in that literal way, that's what happened. But if you apply that in terms of spiritual, spiritually dead people can turn into what? Because of the word, spiritually alive. And by nature, the Bible tells us that we're all spiritually dead. And then through 
the gift of baptism and exposure to the word, what happens? We are given new life, the life that we have in Christ. So prophesy to these bones, prophesy to speak the word of God to those who are spiritually dead. Who are the spiritually dead among us like in our world? Everybody that doesn't know Jesus. And when I say doesn't know Jesus, what I mean is doesn't believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, are spiritually dead. That's their spiritual condition. But the good news is, is that if I speak the word, it isn't me doing it. It's not me making that spiritual life come, is it? It's God's word doing it. And so, see, that's the good news. It's like I had that conversation with that young man, and I'm not saying he's spiritually dead. I'm just saying that when you have that kind of conversation with somebody, what you say stays behind you and with that person. And it keeps kind of working on them. And I like to think of it as the Holy Spirit is nagging that person. And I will sometimes pray that the Spirit will irritate people. <laughs> Are you happy that I'm praying that perhaps for some of you? Yeah, doesn't, isn't that kind of how it works? You kinda, we kind of need to have that sort of poking that the Spirit sometimes does. And sometimes what happens is then we get irritated at God's Spirit. Okay, let's see what else. Matthew 9, 9 to 13. Talk about going again. Kind of thinking again in a broader context of what going might be. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, okay, so that word reclining, what are you thinking of? Lazy boy recliners, is that what you're thinking? <laughs> How did the people sit? How did they sit at tables when they would have like a meal or something? How'd they do that? It was not like this. It was like this. Like that. A low table, sort of. Think of uh, if you went to China or to Japan or something, so in the Orient, it'd be kind of closer to the floor. Okay, think of it that way. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So don't you know that when Jesus started calling his disciples, like who would be, the, who would be an apostle, who would be a disciple, that probably... Some of them already had in their minds an idea of what, of who Jesus would pick. Right? I mean, doesn't that kind of make sense? So you think about like all the people that you know. Who are the people in, in your sort of circle of friends or people you work with or family, etc.? Who are the people that you would say about them, oh, definitely Jesus would pick that person? Do you, have, do you have somebody in mind like that? What would be the criteria of that? That definitely Jesus would pick that person. Oh, if there was ever anybody that would be a disciple, oh, they would be that person. What kind of, what sort of criteria would you 
think that you would use for that. Yeah, Max? Uh, uh, having a pure heart. Having a pure heart, yeah. Would never have any bad thoughts ever about anything. Yes, definitely Jesus would want that kind of person. Okay, what else? Bold. Pardon? Bold. 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 Like opinionated and outspoken, that sort of bold. Wouldn't shy away. Wouldn't shy away. Would always like be the person who would take the stand for Jesus. Stand up and take the stand for Jesus. Like Paul. Like Paul. Oh, if there was ever anybody, Paul would be the one. Like Peter. He walked on the water. Of course, let's pick all the people who walk on water to be the disciples of Jesus. And that will be everybody in the room but me. And yet, who does Jesus pick? Matthew. Well, what, what's so special about Matthew? Nothing. He's ripping people off at their expense under the auspices of collecting money for the Roman government. He has a terrible reputation in the community except for people like him, the sinners and tax collectors. What is Jesus thinking? And can't you imagine if you were like among the first two or three people that Jesus said, follow me, like James and John were fishermen? Well, that makes sense. Fishermen always tell the truth. <laughs> but they did have their own boat. So that was good. And so my thought here is, is that one of the aspects of going is that you can expect Jesus to stretch your idea and your comfort zone of what this is really all about. Right? Because part of the deal is, is that if he picks you to be his disciple, then there must be something that he sees in you that would make it possible for you to connect to somebody else like you. And in connecting to somebody else like you, the gospel has a chance to reach that person. Isn't that interesting? So the Pharisees were obviously upset about this. Why is he doing this, right? And so then Jesus responds in a very cryptic way. Those who are well have no need for a physician but those who are sick. So who at the dinner realized they were sick and who thought they were well? The Pharisees thought they were well. In fact, that's why they're kind of offended that these other people are, are being included. So then Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I value, I desire uh, mercy, not sacrifice. Showing mercy is a greater value in Jesus' kingdom than honoring traditions. Now, are traditions evil? No, they're really good. Like, what's a tradition that you really like? What's a, tra a tradition that you really like is Christmas? Yeah, like what about, what tradition within Christmas? Because that's kind of a big, big thing. Yeah. We celebrate the birth of Christ. Oh, that's so holy. That's so good. That was so holy. Oh, yeah. Okay, now we're getting really down to the real meaning here, right? So mistletoe, that's a nice tradition. Okay, what's another nice tradition that you like? Singing Christmas 
Oh, that's so spiritual. Thank you. Yes. And in addition to that, what else? Oh, getting gifts and giving them. Well, getting is more important. Okay, so see, there's a lot of traditions, and traditions are wonderful. Is it possible to lose sight of why we do them? Yeah, of course. Because after a while, we just do them, and we don't remember why we do them. So we have to kind of be reminded of why we do them, okay? Is it possible to be so fixated on doing the tradition the right way that you run roughshod over people who don't do it exactly the right way that you do it? Yes, a good example of that is how many of you, how many of you know that there's really only one way to do Christmas Eve? <laughs> right? There's only one way to do Christmas Eve. Do you know what it is? Yeah, you go, you, well, if that's a variation on the right way, okay, the right way is that you would go to the Sunday school uh, program, right, where you memorized your pieces, your part, and then you go, get home and after that, and then while you were away, whoever came and put stuff under the tree, could have been Santa Claus, depends on your tradition, and then you open your presents, and you like everything you got, even if you didn't, and then you stay up late uh, that night, and you eat food, and the next morning you get up and go to church. That's the only way that you can do Christmas, right? <laughs> Some of you are going, no, that isn't the right way to do it. And so the likelihood that if you do it the right way, which is a certain way, and then you marry somebody who didn't do it the way you did it, but did it the right way, you'll have an issue to navigate. Okay, I mean, that's, that's again, see, again, part of it is, is that we become convinced that the way that we do it is the right way to do it, and frankly, there's no other way to do it. And that's what was happening here. What's happening here is that there's only certain people we eat with because eating is a big deal. Who you eat with says something about your approval of them. That's the way they looked at it. And so that's why when Jesus would sit down with, uh, you know, tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and all these people, then the Pharisees are going to look at that and they're saying, you must condone their behavior because look what you're doing. And Jesus would say things like, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Boy, what a zinger that would have been in that moment. The point is, traditions are not a substitute for opportunities to show mercy. And sometimes, again, we get so anal about those traditions, and we say, oh, it's got to be that way and no other way. And then when somebody else comes along and doesn't have that same tradition or that same way of doing it, then we think, oh, that's my opportunity to correct you and to set you straight. Next verse. 1 Peter 3.15. Okay, so so far we've been talking about the idea that going might involve anything but talking. I'm sitting in the boat and I'm taking care of the boat or I'm at home and I'm supporting and then, not, and then that's part of going. But there's a lot of doing there that may not involve saying anything until now where Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the what? Hope 
that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. In your hearts, hope is a heart attitude. It's a heart attitude. Now, heart means that it's not necessarily logical. True? Yeah, that sometimes the fact that you have hope as a Christian makes absolutely no sense to everybody around you. And usually that's when you are dealing with a situation that everybody else would say or about which everybody else would say, oh, this is hopeless. There is no hope here. How can you possibly even be positive? How can you possibly think that anything good can come out of this? How can you even trust in God given what you have dealt with? That is, and that is the logical way to look at it, right? If you don't have Christ... But in those moments, when the hope is leaking out of you, and sometimes it leaks out of us in ways that we didn't even realize it was. And then other times we're speaking of it, okay? But here what Peter is saying is there will be those moments when you have hope and nobody else does, and people are going to look at you and they're going to say, I don't know how you do it. How do you do that? And what he's saying is kind of be ready for that. Kind of be prepared, because when that happens, that's a wonderful opportunity to kind of talk about the hope you have. Okay? So let's look at some principles of guidance of how to go and tell. So the first principle is live out your faith in your own family. Live out your faith in your own family. That's kind of the core of where it all begins, right? So that would be like if you're married, your spouse, if you have kids, your kids, if you have like, if you're an aunt and uncle, that, you know, it's just think, think in terms of, of that uh, um, opportunity that you have to be that person for others. And so some different ways to do that, godly conversations. I am, I'm continually amazed and kind of disappointed of how often I have to remind people that part of godly conversations includes asking, will you forgive me? And saying, yes, I forgive you. I just am amazed that that is not part of our normal way of talking to each other, especially in families of faith. And I am constantly saying to people and coaching it and teaching it, it's important to ask and it's important to, to give it. And it's amazing how uncomfortable we are with that. And I haven't really put it together in my head why that is unless it's just we've, we've not done it for so long that we just don't do it. Why is it important to ask somebody, will you forgive me? Because when you ask it, what are you acknowledging? That you blew it, right? So maybe that's why we don't ask it, because we're not real comfortable with admitting that, okay? Why is it important to say, I forgive you, as opposed to saying, oh, it's okay, oh, it wasn't a big deal, that kind of stuff. Why is it important to say, I forgive you? It makes a stronger relationship. Well, it does, but what is it about the words, I forgive you, that does that? What does I forgive you do? It closes the book on that thing. And 
it obligates the forgiver to treat the forgivee as one whom he or she has forgiven. It changes how I'm going to be with you. And if I don't say it, the impetus to do it isn't quite there. Okay? So that's an important piece to that. Uh, So godly conversations. Uh, Home devotions, that's a big one. Pray with your family, that's that's another one. Okay? Uh, Secondly, extend your comfort zone to include non-Christians. Now, is it bad to have friends who are Christian? Hello, no. But what would be the benefit of including in your comfort zone people that are not Christian? Yeah, I mean, again, it's an opportunity to influence, right? Not in a manipulative way, but just simply that you have people around you. And here's the reality. We all have people around us that are non-Christian. Okay, we do. So it's thinking of it that way. And so there's some different ways to do that. Uh, community service events and organizations like things that the church does. Like we have the trunk or treat thing coming up. Um, also in November, we have our surviving the holidays thing that we're doing. And we, we intentionally invite our members, of course. And then we also extend the invitation out to people in the community. So again, it's a way to think intentionally about that. Okay. Uh, aligning yourself with those who have shared interests with you uh, and listening for the opportunity to speak words of encouragement. Okay? Point C, familiarize or memorize scripture so that you can reference it. That's a wonderful moment if you have memorized scripture. I'm not so great at doing that, but I'm married to somebody who really believes in it. It's awesome. It's awesome. So that you can reference it. Because sometimes there are just those moments when it's like the verse is perfect. And don't worry that you don't know where in the Bible it is. You can Google it if you need to. But sometimes we get nervous about that. Oh my gosh, I don't know where it is. Okay. Now, you do want to be careful that you're not quoting Shakespeare. (laughs) But you're actually quoting Jesus or God. Okay? D, pray for God to open doors and for you to see the opportunities that are already there. Sometimes the opportunities are right in front of our eyes and we don't see it because we think we know what the opportunity looks like. It doesn't count if I can't walk on water, right? Well, maybe there's a whole lot of sharing going on in the boat that we didn't even know about, right? And point E, develop your story your story, so you can tell it. And so some things that you could include in your story. How did you come to know Jesus? For a lot of Lutherans, we don't remember when we came to know Jesus. Why? Because when you were baptized as an infant, you didn't know anything, all right? So you might have to sort of kind of, when did you come to know him like remember him, okay? When you are feeling low, how does your relationship with Jesus help you? That's another one. What does hope feel like in you? Be prepared to be observed after you speak of Jesus in your life. What am I saying there? Same thing if you have the little fish on your car. Be a good driver. Same same idea, Gerald. Okay. We're going to be watching Gerald from now on. (laughs) And I am not going to drive near Jane. I'm not going to do that. 
Because people will want to see if you walk the walk that you talk. People today are real big on who's a hypocrite, who's living it, who's not living it, and we just need to be aware of that, okay? And then the last one, trust God for the outcome. Trust God for the outcome. The outcome is not up to you. You're planting seeds, and you may never see that person ever again. Or you might. God makes the growth. God forgives you for not knowing all the answers. So, you know, if he forgives you, I think probably you can forgive yourself. And guess what we'll find out in heaven? There will be people in heaven that you'll be surprised are there. And you might be a surprise for someone else, right? Okay, next week we're going to get back into John. Uh, has this been an okay study? What do you think? We've kind of had a little fun with it. It's been kind of a little light, lighter uh, version of that. So we'll get back into John. I, for the life of me, cannot remember where in John we are, but I assure you we will be there. And so let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for our red letter challenge. It's kind of been kind of a fun way to, and, and a, an invigorating way to sort of look at the ways in which your word speaks to us and we in turn have the opportunity to speak to each other. There's a lot more to going, Lord, than maybe we thought before. And so for those of us that are involved in going and for those of us that are involved in supporting those who go, uh, Lord, uh, extend your blessings upon us and help us feel good about that contribution. But help us also to not simply say, oh, there's nothing I can do or there's so little I can do. There is a ton that you, uh, the opportunities you give us to do. So I pray to your Lord that uh, we will be challenged again this week as we look forward to being together again and, uh, and watch over us and keep us close to you until then. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.